We get together down here at Russell's Pub about once a month, usually the first Tuesday of the month. They say about because we skip usually January and July because of proximity to big holidays. But usually the first Tuesday of the month we're here talking about all sorts of different topics. Uh, we're a group, some of us are Episcopalians that go to Holy Communion in University City, or Trinity right here in the Central West End, or the Cathedral downtown, or St. John's in Tower Grove, a number of churches around that are Episcopalian. And a lot of us are not, and everybody's always welcome to come and talk, and everybody's always welcome to bring friends. Uh, tonight's topic came about partly because of what happened in Missouri this spring. Um, but also partly I, I will say that I have a lot of role in, in figuring out who's going to be the speakers. And I have been a priest for almost eight years now. And before that I was preaching for about six years uh, as a licensed layperson and then a seminarian. And in all of that time, uh, after, until what happened in Missouri this spring, I had never preached a sermon about abortion or mentioned abortion, or talked about abortion. Uh, and some of you know I, I came to St. Louis from a very politically connected church in Washington, D.C., and talking about abortion was absolutely a third rail. You just did not touch it, especially in that context. And it, it's interesting because I, I've also grown up Unlike a lot of folks that end up in the Episcopal Church, I've also grown up in the Episcopal Church, and my mom says we're genetically Episcopalian. There are priests that go back, and that's rare, um, but there are priests that go back a long, long way in my family. And I've always known, sort of anecdotally, that my church's perspective on questions of reproductive health and reproductive justice were different. And I, I'd always sort of known what they were, but it was never something that I talked about. And I went to a Catholic college, and I studied theology, and I basically just totally avoided this conversation. Um, as a theologian, as a faith leader, just don't want to talk about it. Because the space, especially for people of faith, is so dominated, and the conversations are so uncomfortable and it could cause big problems. So I got really nervous when I decided I needed to say something about abortion uh, from the pulpit at Holy Communion. And I knew that you know, like some of our Holy Communion folks wear shirts that say, thank God for Planned Parenthood. And so I knew that I was gonna have allies. I did not know that the sermon was gonna get shared hundreds and hundreds of times and was gonna become like by multiple hundreds of times the most viewed and listened to thing we'd ever published. And I, to this day, I've gotten no hate mail, no negative response. Which, yeah, which is saying something, because I, I think what, what said to me that we needed to get engaged and have a conversation with leaders from Planned Parenthood and have a conversation with what, about what's going on in our state is I think that people of faith have been doing what I did which is avoiding this conversation. And I don't think we can. And I don't think we can, not just for our sake and not just for the sake of the people that largely in our Episcopal churches are, you know, like our demographic, but because of this way in which reproductive health is not just about one question, it's a whole cloth. Um, and the statistics in Missouri are scary. 
And so I think we need to be in conversation and we need to be in dialogue. And so I hope that tonight is a step and I hope it's not, um, I hope it's not our first step and I definitely hope it's not our last. Um, so I want to start by saying thank you very much uh, to Dr. Dave and to Mevi for being with us. Um, Dr. David Ivensenberg for the past almost 10 years has been the uh, medical director for Planned Parenthood, uh, the clinic here in St. Louis, as well as on the faculty at Washington University's Medical School. Uh, and he's been on national press and, um, and has avoided actually appearing on Fox News. Um, <laughs> by the interview, they just wouldn't put, they wouldn't put it on the air. Yeah, so, so um, I'm gonna ask the two, and, and Mevi for the last 20 years, has been doing work um, and is now the political director for Planned Parenthood for the whole state of Missouri. Um, and it's been her whole career working in these questions. Uh, so I thought we'd let them talk a little bit about where we are um, in the state, uh, both in terms of abortion services, but writ large about re reproductive health um, and how the two are connected. And then we will talk at our tables. Um, those things that I've asked you not to turn over, have a set of questions you'll talk at your table, don't turn them over yet. You'll wait until I tell you It's cheating otherwise. And um, Dr. Dave has a kiddo who is sick at home, so he's gonna present, and then we're gonna take, if there are any specifically medical questions, we'll let him answer those, but then we'll let him get home to a sick kiddo. Um, Mevi and I will stick around afterward to unpack policy and theology and stuff like that for a little while. Um, the other thing that I will say is we intentionally did not frame tonight as a debate. Um, and so I would ask you to remember that as you are thinking about your own responses and as you are thinking about tonight is really a presentation about where we are and is, is asking us to think about a different faith perspective. So uh, we're not going to, if there's a question, or I, I, I'm going to reserve the right tonight if there is a point at which somebody really wants to assert a traditionalist perspective on abortion, I'm going to ask you out to coffee and you and I can go and talk about it. Um, and, and I'm going to hold that through whether that's in the big group or in the small group. Um, so if you're at your tables and somebody really wants to assert a traditionalist understanding of, about abortion, I am happy to take you out to coffee, come find me. But we're not going to spend a lot of time on that tonight because we're not viewing this as a debate about two sides. Uh, we're presenting this as a different perspective. What um, is traditionalist? Traditionalist in the sense of what the Roman Catholic teaching on um, abortion would be. It's, it's you know, um, I, I would say the, the traditionalist, that, that's the language that would come from that group, I would say. So, and, and I'll talk a little bit toward the end about how the traditionalist is even a problem, a problematic term with that if you want. But. Yes. So without further ado, um, I'm going to ask Dr. Dave and Mevi to come up and talk with us a little bit about where we are. So thank you. So I have to say, I agree to do these kinds of things all the time. And sometimes I prepare uh, a lot of key points that I want to talk about, and sometimes I don't. I have more knowledge about abortion as a medical procedure, as a public health issue, than you probably want to hear tonight, and I could probably teach a couple semesters worth of classes on it. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions. I've been doing this here in St. Louis for 10 years. I started in this journey 20 years ago. I started as a medical student at the University of Alabama School of Medicine in Birmingham, because um, I followed my state residency uh, when my parents moved and I was an undergrad. 
um, when I got involved in an organization called Medical Students for Choice, which works to help ensure that medical students around the country are given an education about abortion, because abortion is a common experience. When I started medical school in 1999, one in three women in the United States had an abortion by the time they were 45. One out of three. That means there's probably, I'm gonna guess, 30 women in the room, maybe 10 have had abortion. I have no idea, right? Now it's one in four. And the reason for that is not about any church teaching or any governmental policy, or even the fact that many state legislative bodies and governors have worked really hard for political reasons to eliminate access to abortion care. It's because doctors, public health specialists, and women have been able to get better access to more effective contraceptive methods. Because what drives the abortion numbers in this country is the rate of unplanned or unintended pregnancy. And those numbers have been slowly coming down since the, since the early 90s. And now the um, rate of abortion in this country has, is at the lowest number it's been since it was first recorded in 1973. The abortion rate is the number of women per one of reproductive age, that's 15 to 44. Now I'll let you know that I have provided abortion care and labor and delivery obstetrical services to people younger than 15 and older than 44. Because pregnancy happens to women at older points in their lives and girls when they don't want to be pregnant. These are real facts. And the fact is that you gotta cut the data somewhere there. So between 15 and 44, for 1,000 women of reproductive age, right now um, we're at like 14 per 1,000, I think is the abortion rate. And it peaked at 29 per 1,000 in 1983, right? So we've come down almost 50%. It's pretty good. Um, but that translates to about one out of three women, by the time they are 45, was what the abortion number was when I started medical school 20 years ago, and now it's about one out of four. So 25% of women in this country will have an abortion in their lifetime. That is a very common experience. As a healthcare provider, who's a board-certified OBGYN, it's pretty important that I know about those common experiences that women are gonna have, right? About 25 to 30% of women are gonna have a C-section in their lifetime if they choose to have children. Would it be unusual for an obstetrician gynecologist to not learn how to do a C-section? Pretty unusual. But it is not unusual in this country for people who are going to medical school to be OBGYNs or general physicians or pediatrics or you name it, to not have any exposure to abortion care or experience with abortion education in any way in medical school. So that's how I started on this journey 20 years ago. And I started standing outside of Planned Parenthood as a patient escort, helping folks get from their car to the um, Planned Parenthood Health Center. Um, and I will tell you, I have heard it all. There isn't anything anyone could say that would bother me, that would offend me, that would embarrass me. It might embarrass you. Um, but I mean, I literally say the word abortion dozens of times a day. I say the word vagina dozens of times a day. I talk about sex with people from 15 to 95, because if you're not dead yet, you might as well enjoy it, right? Um, and I talk about periods, and I talk about menstrual hygiene products, and all those things. Literally, those are all words that come out of my mouth on a regular basis in a way that sometimes I'll be sitting there and people will be like, shh. <laughs> Why? Because there's a stigma associated with it, right? Because you hear the word abortion and everybody cuts off 
any kind of interest or, or, or wants to talk about it. So I applaud Mike and Lori and the folks who put this together because I think it's important that we talk about this, right? This is a common experience. This is a part of the human condition. And if we are all going to love thy neighbor and take care of their, uh, the people in our lives, it's important that we know about common human conditions, right? And so... I'm happy to answer any questions there are about what the procedures are, about the practice of abortion care, about access issues, about the, um, the kind of issues that women face in the state of Missouri about not having access because their insurance prohibits them, or because there's only one health center left in the state to get an abortion. There's only one or two hospitals in the state that are providing abortion. And where we are as a kind of political and legal space right now, but that's where Mebby specializes. So I'm going to let her say a few words about kind of where we are in 2019. I will say that where we came from, when I came here in 2009, um, I knew what I was signing up for, having been a medical student in Alabama and having gone to college, or I'm sorry, medical school in Alabama, but then done my OBGYN training and my um, fellowship and my master's of public health in Chicago, I knew I was moving closer to Alabama than I was to say, I don't know, Madison, Wisconsin, right? I mean, St. Louis is a Midwestern city with very Southern sensibilities. And I knew the religious history of St. Louis as a very Catholic city. I knew the politics of the state of Missouri as a um, state that would be more challenging than where I came from. But I came here with the hope that we could move the needle in the right direction to improve the health of the population of Missouri. And all I have done is try to dig my heels in as I have been pushed thousands of miles in the wrong direction. But we are still here. And for what it's worth, Planned Parenthood is the only health center in the state providing abortion, and our doors are still open. I took care of um, you know, 15 women today, and I will see another 10 tomorrow. Um, and we will do abortion care until the state says we can't. And we are finding ways to help women access the care they need regardless of their circumstances. Um, and it's not always women for that matter, which is a whole different discussion. Um, but the bottom line is, abortion is still available, and when it is available and accessible, it is safe. And when women have access to abortion care, their health outcomes are better, the health outcomes of their children and their families are better, and if we care about the health and well-being of our communities, then abortion must always be available. So. And not much of the, the lack of training for doctors has to do with the fact that hospitals and universities are run by the Catholic Church. That's a great point. So the state of Missouri, over 50% of the inpatient beds are affiliated with a religious hospital. Now, those religious hospitals, for the most part, are Catholic-affiliated religious hospitals, which has an all-out prohibition on abortion, except for a rare circumstance here or there where, you know, the mother's life is in danger. And even then, those patients tend to get transferred to Barnes Jewish in Wash U, where I take care of them, um, because the Catholic hospital would rather not have to deal with it. Um, so and even so, though they would admit that she needs the abortion, yes, they just don't want to deal with it. Correct. Um, and the other thing about that, besides the fact that residency programs are based at Catholic and other religious affiliated institutions that have prohibitions, residents who choose, you know, residents don't get to choose where they go. It's a rank match system where they can rank programs and then the programs, it's a big complicated process. But my point is that a resident, an OBGYN, prospective OBGYN who finishes medical school and wants to be trained in abortion care might not get that choice. So one of my colleagues right now 
Um, she did her OBGYN residency at um, one of the community hospitals on, uh, in West County that happens to be religiously affiliated. And she got zero abortion care in her um, residency training after four years. She did four tubal ligations in her four years. She came to me at WashU and my colleagues to learn how to provide that care because she didn't get that in four years of training. Even though her patients probably aren't Catholic and they might want sterilization. They might need abortion care, right? But that's how, because that's where the training is. So it's a good point. I'm going to let Mevi talk a little bit about the politics, there's policies. Oh, I'm sorry, was there another question? I just had a quick final yeah. question. I know that there's some debate among medical practitioners about when the nervous system is developed enough and it's used to feel pain. So what is your take on that, and do you use any kind of anesthetization, and at what points? Yeah, so the, the, just so people understand, the, the, the debate is about the, the wiring in our brains, right, in which we perceive pain. What point in pregnancy does that occur? And it's hard to say, um, and it is totally up for debate is, is the answer, but every kind of person of science who weighs the science in an impartial way and is not driven by a personal agenda agrees that prior to about five months of pregnancy, there isn't enough wiring there. Somewhere between, that's 20 weeks. A full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks from the day of the last menstrual period beginning to the day in which we expect a baby to be born. But obstetrics is an exact thing. We generally know, are you pregnant or not? That's pretty exact. But when the baby is going to come is not something that's exact, right? And the point in pregnancy where a baby may survive outside the womb after delivery is somewhere around six months, plus or minus a week or two. Um, and so six months is 24 weeks. At 24 weeks, there is debate whether there's enough wiring there to perceive pain the way that you and I perceive pain. It's, it's unclear. And so most of the um, um, uh, kind of ways in which I practice, and I can only speak for my practice, is I talk to my patients about it. And when they ask me questions about it, I answer them. So first and foremost, anything I give in the way of sedation for the, the, the mother will transmit through the placenta to the fetus. When we think about the levels of risk, putting a patient to sleep for an abortion procedure is higher risk than the procedure itself. Because anesthesia carries risks, right? So using sedation to keep a patient comfortable, some of that will sedate the fetus, but sedation requires a conscious state to be sedated from, right? And so the question of whether a fetus is at a conscious state is a whole different discussion. Um, and so I help patients understand those issues, that they're pretty muddy, and it's gray. And I want patients to be comfortable with the decisions they're making. And sometimes that conversation about the desire to make sure the fetus feels no pain includes the option for us to inject a medicine to stop the heartbeat before the actual abortion procedure where we're removing the uh, fetus happens. And we do that too. Um, and sometimes I end up telling the story my mother told me about the abortion she had in 1971. So I was in high school when she told me the story. I don't remember the first telling of it. I remembered again when I was a medical student when she told me again. But um, she was a had a, uh, two children, my brother and sister. She was living out in Philadelphia, and she had a Lippies Loop IUD, which was a little plastic squiggle that went inside the universe. It was pretty effective, but it wasn't perfect, and she got pregnant with that IUD in place in 1971. And this was 
in a time where if you were less than about seven months along, there was really little chance of your baby surviving just because of the ability to take care of those early 28 week or less babies. Now we're 24, 23 weeks, right? Um, and her obstetrician, who ultimately delivered me and delivered my brother and sister, said, look, this is gonna be a really challenging pregnancy. There's a good chance the pregnancy won't make it. There's a good chance you might get a bad infection. There's a good chance you might jeopardize your future fertility. And my mom, you know, uses this as her word, said, you know, she and my dad made the decision to not let that pregnancy continue out of the love of the children they already had and the children they were going to have. That they did not want to bring a child into the world who would be so challenged that number one, they might have know nothing but suffering. And number two, that it might jeopardize their ability to have another healthy child, right? So in 1971, as a white woman living in Philadelphia, her officer said, great, you want an abortion? Here's the name of the psychiatrist who you go talk to, who's gonna ask you a series of questions. You say yes to everything. We have two doctors who signs off on, on mental and physical health being threatened. Temple University Abortion Committee, literally there was a committee, rubber stamped the application and she got her abortion in the hospital, paid for by her insurance, cared for by her obstetrician, who ultimately delivered me. And she and my dad made that decision out of love. And many of my patients do make the decision to end a wanted pregnancy or even an unwanted pregnancy out of love to avoid suffering, right? And I think that's a hard thing for people to hear the words love and abortion in the same sentence. But that conversation comes up every day with my patients. And so sometimes the pain that we're talking about is about avoiding pain. I know it's a long answer to a short question. I have a problem with that. What is the last menstrual period? The jumping off point for the, the clock that begins to tick so, on these six weeks? It's a great question. So obstetrics has been around since women have been around, right? The traditional practice of obstetrics has been around forever. And how did a woman know she wasn't pregnant? She had a period on a monthly basis, generally, if they had adequate nutrition, etc. right? And if she missed her period, the way in which we dated pregnancy was, do you remember the first day you, of your last period? That's how it works. And most women who have a regular monthly cycle every four weeks, on average, 28 days, on average, will ovulate around the 14th day of the cycle. And if they ovulate around the 14th day and have sex, within three or five days, the sperm gets to the egg, the egg gets fertilized. Within eight to 10 days, the, egg, the fertilized now blastocyst starts to tumble through the tube and into the um, uterus and implant. We can't even recognize a pregnancy until seven to 10 days after fertilization has occurred because implantation has to occur and because production of hormone that shows up in a pregnancy test has to be present. All of those things don't happen until someone has basically missed their period, two weeks after fertilization. And so we date pregnancies based on the last menstrual period for historic reasons, but also because there's just no way to recognize them earlier than that. So that's it. I will say that there's a, a, um, a fascinating thing about pregnancy tests. They weren't available at a Walgreens until about 1983. Right? You couldn't just take a pregnancy test. You had to go to the doctor, the, the whole complicated thing. Women had to have a period every month to know they weren't pregnant if they were having sex regularly, right? And that's one of the reasons the birth control pill has sugar pills at the end of the pack. Anyway. Okay. Top back to follow, Dr. <laughs> Um, so hi everybody, thank you so much for being here, for inviting me and Jerry, my colleague at Planned Parenthood. So my name is Mebby Mead, 
Wade, and I'm the Director of Policy and Organizing for Planned Parenthood Advocates in Missouri. And as Pastor Mike said, I've been doing it for a few years. Yes, I'm 20. And uh, before that, I've been doing um, feminist and reproductive health advocacy literally since um, I was in college. And I was raised, we were joking earlier about the St. Louis, where'd you go to high school? Question, Villa Maria Academy for Young Ladies Whoa. is where I went. So very much formed by my Catholic upbringing. And uh, there's quite a few of us in the movement, recovering Catholics, really driven to do this work based on the social justice teachings of the Catholic Church, totally mismatched with the execution of that faith. And um, the misogyny, patriarchy, and frankly, white supremacy, um, all embodied in that. Growing up, it was super great teaching to do what I do now, which is trying to dismantle all three. So that's my job. Anybody's welcome to join. Part of that job, I'm joking about that, but isn't, I'm not, is the way the path I have chosen to help people um, uh, who need access to this health care to raise their healthy families and live their best healthy lives is by engaging people like you, people who are in this room, who aren't in this room, in the political process. Because in this country, that is how we protect, defend, and expand our rights to anything, and it's also how we crush people. And so as a person who is dedicated to stopping that crushing force, we're going to talk a little bit about and ask you to think about where that's coming from, but also build people up and ensure people have an opportunity to seek their power and build their power is what I do, is what motivates me every single moment of the day, including having to be terrified on Rachel Maddow staring into this little black hole and the media person telling me, don't look up. <laughs> don't blink, which I, I failed, I blinked a lot. But anyway, so that's what drives me, that's why I'm, I'm here tonight and just want to talk about a few things in terms of the big picture political motives that are going on. So that advance in birth control and reproductive health access that Dr. Eisenberg talked about over the years um, since the 1970s has had concrete impact on every single part of our life of our economy and of our world. So Bloomberg News cited advances in birth control as the number one um, business, technological, and educational advance in this country for the past uh, century. That is how important a business outlet is looking at access to reproductive health, specifically um, birth control, because it has had significant, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but have them that I could share, and they're in a fact sheet on our website, the impact on women's access to education, particularly higher education. Women now make up um, over 50% of higher degree graduates than men, and it's been a dramatic change during the course of the increased access to reproductive health services. The, the economic power of women based on that education and their ability to stay in the workforce, I can't remember what um, uh, exponential impact it's had over um, the past several decades. So this is what access um, has done. I mean, it's not just in this country. You can see it in any country where um, people who can get pregnant have the ability to make the decision that's best than them, and you remove any sort of bureaucratic, um, judgmental, religious, 
social economic barrier to those decisions, and there are all kinds of tests around the country. The people who can get pregnant make the best decision for them, and the economy, healthcare, all of these outputs improve. So in Missouri, where we're living now under uh, complete political control at the federal level in the presidency and the Senate, at the Missouri level in the governor's office and both governing chambers, the House and Senate of uh, Missouri government, they're 100% opposed to access to abortion, yes, and are actively, actively seeking to curb access to the other preventive reproductive health services. Annual exams for crying out loud, they are trying to stop their parents patients from being able to access through Medicaid. Sexually transmitted disease infection treatment and testing. The Missouri legislature, the governor, the president, the US Senate are trying to stop people who can get pregnant or just need health care from accessing it. So when I, I pair what the impact of access to these services has done, we can see it, the data's in. I think in that area, some of these anti-science people actually look at the data, believe the data, and are responding to it. And I ask you why, why do you see that data? Are you actively trying to prevent uh, people from accessing those services? And hopefully we can talk more about that at, at our table. Why are they doing that? In Missouri, this past session, they passed one of the most extreme abortion bans in the country. But before that could go into effect, Governor Parson and his health department leader, unfortunately, Dr. Randall Williams, shame on him, um, were trying to weaponize the licensing process to remove the license from the last remaining legal provider of abortion in this state, even before the most extreme abortion ban could go into effect. Why? I ask you why. Think about why. What is their motivation? What are they trying to do? These are the things that real people in Missouri need to um, interrogate and inquire and motivate them to get involved, to be the counterweight. I can't tell you how many people in the past couple of months have come to me saying, I had no idea. No idea that there was only one remaining abortion provider in the state. No idea that we passed the most extreme abortion ban. No idea that was already hugely, hugely complicated to try and get an abortion in Missouri. They had to go through a state-mandated shaming session called an informed consent process that is not informed consent at all. And thanks to this Dr. Randall Williams and Governor Parson, they have recently started demanding that you have a medically unnecessary, vaginally invasive pelvic exam before you get your abortion. And Dr. Eisenberg knows more about that than anyone because he performed a hundred of those medically unnecessary invasive exams at the mandate of the state before we got legal ability to push back and they have since made a change to that, but only for surgical. They're still mandating it if you want a medication abortion. If you want to take a pill, we're gonna stick our hand up your vagina. That's the state of Missouri right now and you have to ask yourself why. And if that's going on, why are what, what can you do to get more people involved because we have an opportunity to change this. So the good news is there's going to be an announcement soon. I think that there's going to be a competitive race for that governor's seat. And there'll be a, 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 an option for somebody who stands for reproductive health to run in that race. Um, there may be a ballot measure. It's complicated. We can talk more about that at another time. There's already several state legislative candidates 
um, Deb Lavender and Kirkwood, who's already announced she's going to run against one of the lead sponsors of the in the Missouri State Senate. Andrew Koenig on this. So there are ways that we as Missourians can turn this narrative around. We can take this unprecedented moment of attacks and say and take advantage of what I think is an overreach and, and change how our state is run. It is going to take all of us uh, rolling up our sleeves and taking a little toasty and, um, and making that difference uh, because we love the state and we love the people of the state. This sort of at your tables breaking the groups of about like, I was six. Say, yeah, I, I have like five more minutes. If anyone oh, is comfortable any asking more of the kind of medical procedural questions, I'm happy to answer for five minutes, and then I got to run. Unfortunately, I'd love to stay. Claudia, you have your hand up first. Can you talk about the abortion pill? Yeah. And how that? So there's basically. You know, as I said, obstetricians are generally simple people. Are you pregnant or are you not? Um, do you want to be pregnant or do you not? Um, and once you make the decision to not be pregnant, up until about 10, 11 weeks of pregnancy, again, from the first day of the last menstrual period, um, you can choose to do a pill abortion, which is a combination of two medications that was originally approved in 2001. Um, the first pill in the state of Missouri, a doctor is the only one who's allowed to induce an abortion, so a doctor has to hand you the pill, and I have to certify I've observed that you've swallowed it. In Illinois, right across the river, a nurse practitioner or advanced clinician can do that, right? So the licensure of abortion or healthcare for that matter is different from state to state. The pill you take in the clinic causes very little symptoms, but it blocks a really key hormone in pregnancy called progesterone. And that a second medication you take at home causes rhythmic contractions of the uterine muscle to expel the pregnancy. As a result of the blockade of progesterone, the pregnancy separates, from the wall of the uterus, and then the pregnancy passes. When you are less than seven weeks, it's 98% effective. When you are between seven and eight weeks, it's 95% effective. Between nine and 11 weeks, it's more than 90% effective. And when I say effective, I mean the pregnancy passes with no need for surgical intervention. A surgical abortion, which is what, I don't like that term because surgery sounds scary, is literally the safest procedure that's done in medicine. It is a vacuum procedure. We take an instrument that looks like a straw, called a cannula, place it inside the uterine cavity, and vacuum the pregnancy tissue out. We can do that up until about 14 weeks, the end of the first trimester. So surgical suction procedures, or whatever, aspiration procedures, people might call it DNC or dilation and curatage, that's the most common type of abortion around the country. But of the women who are 10 weeks or less, where that pill's known to work, about 40 to 50% are choosing the pill abortion over the aspiration procedure. In the second trimester, we use medications to induce the pregnancy to deliver, and or another um, uh, um, evacuation called a dilation or evacuation. It's a combination of suction and surgical instruments. But the bottom line is, the vast majority, more than eight in 10 abortions, almost 90%, are done in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy when the pill is available, right? And the, the safety of the pill in terms of the risk of a major complication is the same in the risk of a aspiration procedure, except there's one extra risk, which someone's gonna be the one out of 10 or whatever that doesn't work, and, or um, um, two out of 100, depending on the gestational age, right? And you have to have the suction procedure. The risk of a major complication from an aspiration procedure in the first trimester is less than a colonoscopy. It is less than having your tonsils out. It's 20 times less than a full-term delivery of a baby. 
It can be done in a doctor's office from a medical kind of standpoint. But according to state law, even the pill abortion has to be done in a licensed abortion facility, which is a higher regulatory burden than an ambulatory surgical center, but just below a hospital. So, yeah? If the tissue is evacuated at home, so it depends on the circumstances. So she passes the pregnancy at home like a miscarriage. Women have been having miscarriages literally since the beginning of time. Now, less women die as a result of bleeding from miscarriages and infection than they used to because of modern obstetrics and things like that. But the ability to pass a pregnancy at home is the body's natural experience. More than one in four pregnancies end in a spontaneous abortion. That is the medical term for a miscarriage. And so, yes, the pregnancy passes at home. We do recommend follow-up. It can either be a routine ultrasound to make sure the pregnancy is passed, or a blood test to make sure that the hormone level is dropping, and that um, in some places they'll even use like a standardized phone um, set of questions, and then the patient take a pregnancy test a few weeks later. There was one other medical question up here. Um, I'm wondering if you could say something about the misnomer of defunding Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And how the, the gag rule is having an effect on things other than abortion. So our Planned Parenthood affiliate, Planned Parenthood in St. Louis region in southwest Missouri, has six health centers in the metro area, Fairview Heights, Illinois, right down the corner of Forest Park and Boyle, South Graham, North County, West County, St. Peter's, but then there's two out in Springfield and, and uh, Joplin in southwest Missouri. Each of those health centers provides preventative health care for men and women. 12% of our patients are men, I think, right? Oh, no, it's like 20 now. 20% of our patients are men. Routine healthcare, sometimes school physicals, that kind of thing. Um, STD testing and treatment, um, contraceptive care, PAP tests, you name it, right? All of those health centers provide that care and bill your insurance. One of the best ways to support Planned Parenthood is be our patient. We'd love to bill your Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever. They reimburse us at a much better rate than Medicaid, which, by the way, doesn't want to reimburse us. But we bill Medicaid, right? Medicaid um, is a state-funded program to provide healthcare for the indigent, for the poor. And the state has tried to cut us out of that. That's the, quote, defunding of Planned Parenthood, right? But in addition, we have other funding streams, including the federal Title X program. Title X was started in 1970 by the Nixon administration to provide that set of health care services, preventive health care, family planning services, et cetera, for poor women on a federal level. Now, each clinic that qualifies for Title X funding has to meet very stringent criteria, et cetera. But now they're trying to implement this idea of a gag rule that if you even talk about abortion with your patients, you cannot receive funding from the federal government. So, I mean, it gets more complicated than that, but that's the explanation. When I was living in Washington, D.C., I was part of an ultimate frisbee team that was the gay ultimate frisbee team. And one of our members was a nurse practitioner at Planned Parenthood. And she told us this about um, one of the best ways to fund Planned Parenthood is to go get your healthcare there. And suddenly, the whole Ultimate Frisbee team was getting their STD tests and all of their care at Planned Parenthood. Um, and, yeah. and the thing is, we probably accept your insurance at the health center. And by the way, you can make an appointment online for tomorrow. I mean, and most likely, if you're coming in for like, uh, you know, contraceptive care or you need a pap test, whatever, you're in and out of there faster than my doctor's office at the medical center because they do a great job in taking care of patients in a high quality but cost effective way. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to bail. But yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you.
Um, I did think it was kind of funny when I first put this together and I talked to Sherry and I was like, oh my gosh, a, a priest guy is going to host a doctor guy and we're going to talk about abortion. Um, it is funny. It is funny. But on the other side of it, I think that we need to get to a world where that's not funny, where that's normal. Um, because there are a lot of men talking about abortion and they're not talking about it this way. Well, um, and, and I'll tell you that, you know, I said that abortion is a part of the human condition. Sex is a part of the human condition. And while there are kinds of sex you can have that don't result in pregnancy, generally a penis is involved if you're going to get pregnant. And so people with penises probably deserve to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. So, thank you. All right. See ya. So, on your table, uh, there are three questions. Turn them over. First question. Oh, I'll, I'll bring it to you. Um, I got it. So, describe some of the barriers to reproductive health care that exist in our region. How many of these barriers are connected to economics? How many of them are connected to theology and faith? You had a couple of mentions. Um, when did you first become aware of the abortion debate? Has your own view remained the same across your life? Why or why not? And then finally, how often do you speak about how your faith informs your views on reproductive health and abortion? What role should people of faith play in these discussions? Should rosaries and ovaries be kept totally separate? Um, before she leaves, I also want to ask Sherry to say a word about the, um, the things you can pick up at the table here with the name text. Sure, sure. Hi, everybody. I'm sorry I have to go a little early, too. Um, some of you might know me from the Deaconess Anne House. I was a part of the second year, and I now work in Planned Parenthood in the um, development office. So if anybody is interested in donating tonight, I just have to give a plug to my um, department. I have forms here for three of our different organizations. Um, we actually are an umbrella for four different ones, but we don't have a form for the other one. Um, so the first one here is for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Missouri. It's focused on legislative updates and obviously advocacy work and things like that. The second one is Reproductive Health Services, which is specifically for abortion funds um, for the one clinic that's still open in Missouri currently. And then the third one is Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region in general. So some of you might donate to the national office, but these funds are going to go directly to patients here in Missouri. Um, and I also have my business cards here. If you're interested or have any further questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. And, and thank you all for meeting and being And Sherry, thank you for helping organize tonight. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Yeah. All right, talk about Talk amongst yourselves. We'll be back together in about 13 minutes. We're going to come back together. And usual, I'm going to make you talk a little bit about where what came up at the table. So, was there anybody who has had the same view about abortion across their whole life? We had a few. How many people did it change for? How many people did it change for really significantly? Does anybody want to talk about where their hand was in this? I do. Okay, Danny. When I was in high school, was the first time I went to a conservative uh, private school. It was the first time I had ever um, encountered the abortion debate, so to speak, but it really wasn't a debate. It was more of like, well, this is truth, and then this is not. Over like 
do have discussions with my doctor that people, whether from a theological perspective or even a political perspective, really had no right being in that. Um, so yeah, like I, I found like a complete just total turnaround from where I used to be on the subject. And a lot of it was just because I just wasn't really informed. I wasn't given a fair education on it. It was just like, this is what you're going to believe. So purity culture. Let me, if, if you'll let me do a really short summary. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, a Lutheran pastor in Denver, and not able Swubber, who's um, going after this purity culture thing. But um, purity culture was big when I was in high school too. And it just, you know, a lot of these purity rings, and girls and their dads would make promises to each other, and the girls would promise not to have sex until they were married and things. Um, and, and they would get this ring at church. Um, what was the dad promise? Uh, to like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, promised to help uphold and protect his daughter and help her guide her to make the right choices so she could save herself for her So Nadia um, Boltzweber, the Lutheran pastor in Denver, uh, created uh, with an artist uh, this project where you could mail in your purity ring. And they would mail you a silicon, like, like, yeah, you know, like sports ring, uh, that was a, an impurity ring. Uh, and then they, they melted down all of the gold purity rings and made a gold vagina uh, as a statement about, you know, like reclaiming um, right to gold. Uh, experienced just a change even in the national or the local consciousness about what abortion is or was or the way that we've had that debate. Is that part of anybody's sense of change? Lisa. Well, I was mentioning in this group that I think that as we've gotten farther and farther away from the time in the United States when abortion was illegal in most places, people have forgotten what the consequences were in women's lives and you know, the people, I, I, uh, the, the, I've read a lot of books about this time period, and the people that were fighting to get abortion, abortion legal before Roe vs. Wade were doctors and nurses because they were seeing what they were seeing in the emergency rooms. And as we've gotten further and further away from that, people just have been, have gone into this paradigm that's all about saving babies. And a lot of people just, I think, don't give much more thought to it than that. And that sounds nice and lovely. So here's one so. that surprised me, um, which I didn't know about until I started doing some research around that sermon, which is that the shift has been bigger than just, you know, on a cultural level. Um, there's a lot around political power with this, which I'll let maybe talk a little bit about locally. But um, the Southern Baptist Convention before and after Roe was in favor of abortion services. Yes. And it was... <coughs> so were mo I mean, a huge number of Republicans. Um, it, the Roman Catholic Church is, has always had it, sort of its, it, its position. But the Southern Baptist Church, which is the largest denomination... I don't know if it is still. They, the Roman Catholics may have leapfrogged them. But at the time, definitely was was absolutely in favor of Roe um, at the time when it passed, and 
there was a this and at the time the Southern Baptist Church was also very much in support of segregation. And when the um, when the Falwell sort of Southern strategy stuff happened, they realized abortion was a way to politicize that could ensure a new political map on a federal level. And the Southern Baptist Convention changed its position on abortion to mirror the Roman Catholic position. When was that, do you know? Uh, it's early 80s. Yeah, Reagan. Yeah, Reagan. So Reagan. 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 So that, that to me was just fascinating. Um, it's just a fascinating, fascinating. And, and the Southern Baptist Convention generally leads the evangelical sentiment um, theologically. It, it just does, because it's the largest body of evangelicals in the country. And, and so it, it tends to, to turn the tide on where evangelicals... And, and the Southern Baptists also have the largest number of seminaries and things like that, so they, they turn that tide. Which is fascinating. Um, let's look at a couple other questions. Um, I, I'm actually going to hold the first question, because I want to ask Mavi to talk a little bit about it. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I hear us talking about religion and abortion, yeah. and not faith and abortion. So let's go there. So how often does your faith inform your views on abortion? Um, how often do you speak about that? Ooh, it's quiet. Is that telling? Has anybody had a faith-informed conversation about abortion where you were talking about your faith? I was... I'm going to... Go ahead. Yeah, one of, my, one of my friends got an abortion at uh, my sophomore year of college and was like nervous to talk to me about it because she knew I was like a believer in Jesus, um, but she needed um, help getting pointed towards resources and had a lot of questions and not a lot of support. And I helped her like figure out that process. And, and she was like, isn't like God going to be so mad at you? And I was like, I'm loving on you right now. That's, that's interesting. I mean, it gets to what Lori was separating in terms of faith and religion. I think it, I'm going to go ahead, Jillian. I mentioned this a little bit at the table, but like one of the things that has come to me, like in my specifically like religion in this debate, has been um, who the people who are most affected by this and like how much power comes into the conversation and how we're looking at this from like a Christian perspective and who Jesus was and who. Jesus spent his life fighting for and fighting against. Like, Jesus was standing up for marginalized and minoritized people and, like, fighting against empire. And so, if we're thinking about, like, from a Christian perspective, like, who are the people who are being negatively affected by this conversation and by this debate and by these policies? And they are people of color and they are trans people and they are people who are in poverty. And I think that as Christians, we're supposed to, like, stand up and stand with yeah. them. Yeah. No, I, it gets at it. I mean, it's, it's this question about why is it that we don't talk about this? Because your kind of organization, namely the denomination, is an extraordinary, ineffective way of bringing these matters up. You're so busy with your liturgies and your this and that that... Uh, that you don't have any time for that, and that you were worried also that you'd lose members. 
I, I want to point out that this is my father-in-law <laughs> who, who attends more faithfully church than almost any other member of my family, including these days my mother, who's also an Episcopal priest. So, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to take issue with that because I think you see with what's happening with evangelical Christians and the Catholic Church that it is actually a very effective way of reaching people. Yeah and forming um, not only their beliefs, but their politics. And I think... Um, yeah, under one central issue. Yes. And, 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 and I'm wearing one of those, thank God, for Planned Parenthood t-shirts. Um, and part of that, and I'm one of the people who helped create these t-shirts. And our reasoning behind it was we were tired of the religious right claiming God on their side. Because I believe there are a lot of people who are people of faith and they can either take this message literally or figuratively that God is not, in my mind, God is not on their side. In my mind, what they're doing is wrong. And too few people stand up and say that. And especially too few men stand up. I think part of something that came up in our conversation is because of how religion and faith has been politicized, some people feel stuck and guilted into having certain opinions on these issues in order to still identify as being a believer of faith. Um, and I, a lot of my personal experience with that has been around like the Southern Baptist because yep. um, that's where I grew up and so most of my family I would say is feels stuck and guilted and shamed into that if you believe in God you have to believe this yeah. you have to vote this you have to have these strong issues or else <laughs> and they're being told that is also part of the culture um, so I think a lot of people need to be liberated mm -hmm. from that um, so that just came up in our conversation so I think that was like that's I'm going to we come back around to this. Um, I do want to ask specifically, and I, I, I sort of warned Mevi that I was going to ask her to talk on this, about some of the barriers that exist, and especially some of the inequities around reproductive care in our region, in our state. Um, if you could talk, maybe a little bit about what's, I mean, sort of the state of reproductive health and the inequities that are going on in Missouri and how those are linked to this conversation. Sure, thank you. Uh, thanks everybody for sharing uh, some of those comments, really helpful and insightful and vulnerable. Um, so in terms of access, so uh, the thing that I say over and over again is that if you look at all the data indicators and you match it up against uh, a commitment to life and helping Missourians live longer and um, have better health outcomes, the three key indicators that we should all be able to agree on is maternal mortality, what happens to pregnant women in the course of pregnancy, infant mortality, what happens between birth and year one, and Medicaid expansion. And on all three of those indicators, the very legislative 
Um, powers that be that I discussed earlier are doing nothing or are actively interfering with improving those indicators. Missouri ranks near the bottom of all of the states in this country with our rates of maternal and infant mortality. We are like 45th ranking, meaning that we have more women, um, as uh, Dr. Eisenberg was talking about, as they, it's calculated by a rate out of 1,000 women, how many died out of 1,000 infants, zero to one year, how many died. Missouri's rates are higher than nearly every other state in this country, and they are on the rise. That's unconscionable, and in terms of who's most impacted in some areas of the state, in St. Louis City in particular, the rates for maternal and infant mortality are four times as high for women and babies of color than they are for white. And in other parts of the state, it is similar, the boot heel, I can't name every area. Um, and to the Medicaid expansion, this doesn't all cut along race lines, this cuts along class lines and geographic lines. Uh, I don't know if anyone can guess uh, which county in this state has the highest increase um, in the rate of syphilis, or they could guess what our average rate of increase in syphilis in rural counties is in Missouri. It's over 300% in the past three years in the top 20 uh, rural Missouri counties. We are having a syphilis public health emergency across the state, but specifically in rural areas. Now the numbers are smaller in terms of uh, rates and increases, but they are rising in the Speaker of the House, Elijah Harris uh, District near Springfield, Missouri, over 300% increase in the past three years of syphilis cases. And the impact of syphilis, it can lead to death, it can lead to serious health outcomes, more serious than some others, and it can be passed to babies and kill them. So they're ties right back into the infant and maternal mortality. So we are, we have not only, uh, there are so many points of self-interest in this uh, sort of crap state that we're in right now that I hope that people can find one to latch on to and then advocate for increasing access and certainly stop this crushing of reduced access to sexual and reproductive health care. What other questions do we have? Well, what's happening with the, like, people on this side of the argument if they address people in government? What kind of response do you get? I mean, if you, do you, do we have, do you have a, like a program or a plan to like educate them? Because it sounds like they're not very well educated on a lot of these issues. Is somebody working on reaching out to them and educating them where they need to, you know? So the question is, is this information being pointed out to the decision makers in this state? And that is my job, is well, that right? I'm talking about a conversation, not just, you know, uh, I mean, um, uh, genuine discussion, hearing them, hearing them and, and, you know, having a discussion, not just bombarding them and things like that. That's it. Do we start, at what point do we start? So, yes, um, I'm responsible for running the legislative program for Planned Parenthood Advocates in Missouri. I'll just do a little plug. All the information about the programming that I'm responsible for and that we do to try and engage people in the process is on our website, ppmissouri.org. Sherry thought maybe that could get popped into a bulletin or something. Yeah. 
Um, and so there's lots of information, and there's lots of points of entry into the political process. And we hold um, four to six lobby days in Jefferson City each year, where we do send teams of trained people in with a leader and a debriefer to have these conversations with elected officials. Um, I would say the most of those are not um, mind-changing conversations. Some are pretty discouraging. Some are opening, and we have moved legislators, for example, into supporting small advances on birth control and teeny tiny advance on sex education. So we keep trying to do that. Those same legislators are voting on the most extreme abortion ban, with the exception of one Republican we moved off that ban this year. So we're, I'm trying, we're trying, and you all should continue trying. We also try to have meetings in district, which I also, I think actually we should do more of. Some of those legislators are really hard to get, especially if we're reaching out. So if anybody's interested in talking to their elected official in the district, and that can just take like three people having coffee somewhere in the district, and that can be a super, super effective, but we're trying it. Not to throw a total wet blanket on that, but we also need to think about what's going on with the politics when it comes to electing state legislators in this state. Through decades of very sophisticated partisan organizing, the way our state districts are drawn is terrible. It's not fair. People may have heard the term gerrymandering. So political appointees draw maps right now designed to increase the number of Republican legislators. And that's, that's just what's been happening. And all sorts of Democrats have contributed by doing political trade to get a safer district. And then they'll give up two or three other districts in that thing. So it's got us way out of whack with how the people of Missouri feel. And that is what is driving this, because the only thing that matters to many of these elected is a Republican primary. So last cycle, I don't know if people were involved, but Planned Parenthood advocates and a number of other progressive groups um, and the people of Missouri changed that process through clean Missouri. So now it is in our constitution that we have to draw those maps more fairly. A state demographer, a scientist has to be involved. We tried to take some of the politics out of it. The very same legislators and we spent a lot of time talking in the session are talking about trying to undo that um, and maybe put up another constitutional amendment so that the plot thickens and the fight continues, I'll say. But that is our, our path to try and get an elected body of people we could have more sensible conversations with and really talk to them about what their district needs are, what the crisis is in the state and in their district, and how we could move together more sensibly when they're not just thinking about the most conservative 30% of their district, that Republican primary. That's all that's driving those people in many cases right now. This is Mike. Thanks so much for listening to Theology on Tap. Next month, September 3rd, 2019, we'll be back at Dressel's Pub. We'll be joined by the Reverend Lori Anzalotti, Assistant Rector at Holy Communion, and Maharat Rory Pickernice, a leader in St. Louis's Jewish community. Together with others from the Homeland for Human Justice Coalition, they protested at Fort Sill, Arkansas, riding a bus 24 hours back and forth to protest the construction of new immigrant detention facilities. Come and listen and talk about our country's borders and ways in which we can be welcoming to immigrants. We hope to see you back at Theology on Tap.